0: Hi everyone, I hope you're all well. Welcome back to Our New World if this is the second time that you've tuned in. And if it's the first time, then welcome, welcome. Lovely to have you on. We got some good feedback last week about how useful a lot of Patricia's advice was, which is really great because remember, that's the idea of this whole thing is we want this to be useful, we want it to be practical for everybody. So do remember to email in, subscribe, like them share this with as many people as you can the email address is max at that's max at M-A-H-B online.org we've already had some really good suggestions for people that i can follow up with and topics that i can cover Today we're talking to Ashley Colby. Ashley is an environmental sociologist. She has a PhD from Washington State University and she's essentially a certified badass. Now, the reason I say that is not just because she's an ex-trucker, although I will be asking her about that, don't worry. The reason I say that is actually because Ashley has not only studied social change, but she is living social change. She's based out in Uruguay at the moment where she heads up an experimental learning school called the Rosoma Field School. She's also involved in a cooperative startup whose mission is to accelerate local economies called Fair And those two links can be found in the episode description. Basically, Ashley's mission is to be involved in as many initiatives as possible that focus on doing anything they can to ferment local decentralized networks of people who can get us into the next iteration of society as fast as possible. And if that sounds a bit alien, she explains it really, really well. So please listen on. Ashley studies and her book explores subsistence food production, which is essentially being able to grow your own food for the purpose of supporting yourself. Now whilst that doesn't sound like it's something for everybody or something that everyone has access to, the thing that I love about this conversation is that Ashley makes it relevant to people who don't necessarily have access to allotments or gardens or fields to grow your own food. So we talk a lot about how you can make an impact when you live in a city and you don't necessarily have access to green space. And that is a really important part of Ashley's message. She discusses the importance of things like collaboration, community, knowing your neighbors, getting involved in things that you enjoy, and most importantly, just talking about things. And from there, she comes out with one of the best calls to action that I've ever heard. So listen on, enjoy the chat, check out her links. Let's get into it. Awesome, well, Ashley, thank you so much for joining me today.
1: I'm so happy to be here.
0: Yeah, it's great, it's really great to have you. So I did say that I wasn't gonna focus on this for the whole episode, so I just wanna get a couple of things out of the way. The 18 wheel driving trucker life that you lived before the current one now, <laughs> could you just very briefly tell a little bit about that? Because Sure,
1: a- yeah, so um, I don't know if I, yeah, so I- I've just kind of had like a few lives already when I'm, I'm only 35, but I feel like I've tried out a lot of things. And, um, and it was a way between college and grad school, I was a nanny and, and a basically long-term traveler. So I, my nannying fed, fed my, my, um, travel needs. And I traveled to 30 something plus countries during that time. And then before grad school started, I thought like, I need to do something where I could make a decent amount of savings to kind of get me through grad school, which notoriously doesn't pay very well, um, and maybe not even a living wage. So I thought, why don't I try this thing, it would be an actual skill to have. um, And you can make decent amount of money in a short period of time doing that so yeah i was a trucker for a short time and i don't know i guess it kind of fits in with my philosophy of like just do just do what what makes sense in the moment to solve the problem you're facing and and it solved the problem of trying to to save some money before grad school started so
0: yeah i bet i bet it was crazy as well um have you done anything since you because that was around the states right in north america have you done anything Mm -hmm. in south america in uruguay where you are now
1: I have not been a truck driver since I quit that that job and started uh, grad school. But that kind of tenacity you need to do, you know, sort of really physical work and work that's really outside your comfort zone has really helped me transition to life in a new country and to homesteading. So, um, yeah, it, it, it kind of all connects.
0: For sure. And in Uruguay at the moment how is it what's the situation there at the moment
1: it's it's a very nice place to live I thought that it might be and I was right and I'm very glad that that has come to be true Um, I, I moved here with like a really nerdy set of parameters of like looking for a country that would be very stable to raise kids in. Um, And it has proved to be such there is a pandemic here, but the numbers are very low compared to the rest of the world mostly everything is open with just regular, you know, wearing masks and, and, and such. But yeah, it's a really nice place to live to raise kids. It's very clean. It's very orderly. It's very, um, boring in a very good way, (laughs) like boring in that it, things are running you know, we're not in a crisis. So um, it's very nice. It's a nice place to be.
0: Yeah, good. I bet there are a lot of jealous people listening. Was, was there any, any of the environmental incentives moving there?
1: Say more what you mean by environmental incentives. So,
0: like, I mean, I don't actually know what they're like on environmental policies in Uruguay, but was that an incentive to move there away from like a big city or into a more sort of environmentally friendly area?
1: Yeah, um, they do have some policies. For example, the entire electrical grid here is run on renewables. Um, So that's really lovely that it's a small enough country that they can kind of try these initiatives that for bigger countries might be more out there or considered more risky. They had, for example, we bought a solar water heater, which is not like sort of photovoltaic. It's um, just like a black box that heats water up by the sun. And we had a government subsidy to do to buy that. So there are certain things like that that are quite good here in Uruguay. Also recently um, there's something called regenerative agriculture. Not everybody knows what it is and it's also kind of emergent at the moment. Maybe the past couple decades um, it has kind of emerged onto the larger scene of environmental issues and solutions. But um, one of the main institutes that is a proponent of regenerative agriculture is called the Savory Institute and the the founder of that institute Alan Savory came to Uruguay a few months ago just I think less than two months ago and had a meeting with um, the Minister of Agriculture here and they're doing a partnership to make Uruguay because Uruguay is already a pretty heavily ranching kind of culture um, and the agriculture tends toward ranching and livestock and the Ministry of Agriculture is doing a partnership with the Savory Institute it's the first country that's doing a partnership with the Savory Institute on a federal level to try to do more regenerative agriculture practices. And that's really super exciting. So I think that there is basically Uruguay is is a country that's small enough and leans enough in the directions of solutions and understanding environmental, uh, certain practical environmental solutions that it could be really a leader. In, in the world on these these kind of you know experimental policies
0: yeah that's really cool I mean I, I think the only thing that I knew about it even a couple of years ago was its legalization of cannabis and that seemed like quite forward thinking and progressive and so yeah I suppose the size the size is a, is an input sorry a, a feature but
1: yeah, for sure. And yeah, it's just it tends to be much more progressive in comparison to most of the rest of South America, um, which which I really like. And there's, you know, just strong social safety net, universal healthcare, universal education. There's certain things that just make the infrastructure really nice to live here. For example, they're trying to make the entire country fiber optic every kid in public school gets a laptop so that they're connected to the internet and can learn that way. Certain things like that, that like really they, they understand the basics of, <laughs> you just need basic infrastructure to get um, that everybody, that needs to be universal. And then, you know, things can flourish a lot with yeah. that kind of um, policy.
0: Yeah. Sounds amazing. Okay. So as, as a uh, a teacher actually, and I have done some teaching in my time, I'm really interested in the Rizoma school. Am I pronouncing it right? Rizoma? Rizoma?
1: Yeah. 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 Rhizoma. You could say it either uh, Rizoma or in Spanish, you say the Z as an S. Rizoma. Rizoma.
0: Lovely. I will come onto that uh, in a bit because I think education is a, is a lovely sort of forward thinking part of this all. Um, but your, okay. So your research, which links nicely to kind of these Uruguayan subsistence ideas Could you tell us a little bit more about the research that you did and where that kind of led you?
1: Sure. So um, my dissertation research was talking to subsistence food producers in Chicago, in and around Chicago. So city of Chicago, suburbs, um, and rural areas. And at first the research project was not meant to include um, rural areas, but then I had a fellow grad student in class say, like, why wouldn't you be including rural people when you're talking about subsistence food production? They're like, the ones who typically do that. And I, and I kind of had this, this bias that I now realize looking back, like, you know, urban people are the environmentalists, urban people are at the forefront of these things. And um, including rural people really changed my entire perspective about environmental solutions um, in that it, it helped me to see um, that, that, Rural people or people who are connected to land as a part of their livelihood, um, including subsistence producers here in Uruguay or around the world, they just know a lot more than the urban people do, like typically, you know. Um, So they're connected to the land and that's, that's, I think, something to really pay attention to and be open to talking to those kinds of people about the way they see the world and the kind of solutions they imagine or are enacting basically to include them in, in what we would might, what we might call an environmental movement, which I think up until this point they're kind of marginalized, both rural people in the United States and developed countries and in the global south. But yeah, the 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 book, the findings of my research were really interesting or at least to me, I certainly didn't go in with the hypothesis that I found, which was um, I basically found, that these people who do subsistence food production they develop these practitioner networks talking with other people who do similar kinds of activities and then those practitioner networks kind of flourish in that people are sharing information about where to source materials where to where to find feed for chickens whatever and then they sort of become this little informal network that then can be used for, for different ends and I found that there were both political and economic what I call shadow structures but basically there were these informal political and economic arrangements that came out of these practical groups so one of one example is that there would there was a guy in Chicago who was on a tiny like urban lot but he had like an insane amount of poultry <laughs> different guinea fowl chickens geese whatever and he would always have more manure than he knew what to do with. So he would he would bucket up the manure, give it to this farmer in a rural area who can then like spread it out in a larger land base. And then in return, he would get like a, a CSA box of vegetables share kind of thing for free. And there were so many arrangements like this that are just completely informal. They're not measured in any way, but they really are like an alternative economic world. Um, and these things are much more developed in rural areas. They're much more developed in the global south. And I think they're just incredibly rich ways of economic, I don't know, livelihoods that are, that are basically unmeasured in any formal way yeah. um, and are kind of marginalized because they're not part of the formal economy. But um, they're incredibly resilient because they're these small-scale local um, interactions. People are bartering and trading things that are useful and and beneficial and and breed resilience. So I think they're worth paying attention to.
0: Yeah, sure. And you, so you mentioned at the end there something about an alternative an alternative economic world. And I guess the you know the question is what is the benefit of subsistence farming over the kind of globalized food production industry that we currently have is it a combination of the two or is it that one is just you know our system right now is unsustainable which I think a lot of people have heard of you know that being vegetarian and kind of the overproduction and the monocultures that what's damaging so subsistence farming it's meant to be beneficial is it for for everyone involved and not just because of the social connections but environmentally
1: yeah so um I I personally tend to think in what you might call historical materialist terms, which means I kind of like to just notice the actual trends as they exist and try not to put too many, I don't know, judgments, ethical perspectives on these things. So I argue that industrial agriculture is a result of like the petrochemical era. We have this abundant source of energy, Uh, it makes us able to farm giant tracts of land with giant machines in this way where we have isolated chemicals and added those for fertility or for, you know, pesticides or whatever. Mm -hmm. And all of this is a result of this glut of oil that we have. Um, I, I think that that form of agriculture cannot continue. So it's not really a question of like, should we stop them from doing this? Like, yeah, we probably should, we probably should have, but it's going to stop on its own because there are a a bunch of different planetary boundaries that it's running up against that any one of them fails. For example, soil health. If there's no soil health, you can't grow food in this way. You can't till every season. And keep adding more and more inputs, it will just lead to a dust bowl. And um, some, some places, some, some scientists have said there's only 60 harvests left doing this kind of uh, agriculture. So subsistence food production while of course can can include harmful practices on a smaller scale the scale itself is just so so much more manageable and humane to be able to see the results of these bad practices and that you can that you can respond in like this more human scale and i honestly think like localization in general is just so it's it's really a great framework for testing out solutions because it's just on a scale that people can understand and see and interact with and one of the chapters of my my book talks about ecological embeddedness so people who produce food for themselves in their own backyard they can't outsource bad practices they are Destroying their own backyards or their own land if they're choosing to do bad practices. So yeah. they're Im- they're embedded. They they see the result of it. They can't outsource it. They can't like let somebody else do it and kind of avert their eyes. Um, and it it leads to a different kind of understanding and a different set of practices because people are, um, you know, just keenly aware of what's happening. So I I I like to emphasize though that I don't think. Subsistence production, for example, is like a silver bullet or every single person should do it or it's perfect or whatever. I think the point is that um, we need to just start moving in the direction of this kind of scale, this kind of connection to nature, this kind of connection to community and sort of do trial and error. And Mm. that's the really important thing is like, I think a lot of us are stuck in this like doom mindset of how terrible things are and how hard it is to overcome all the problems that exist and the, the message I got from the, the data in my book, the, the people I spoke with, the interviews I did was just start somewhere, try anything you're interested in. It doesn't have to be food. It could be education or construction or whatever and try different ways of doing things see what works reevaluate and and this is this is it this is the only this is like this is the only way forward as far as I can see is just trying things and figuring out what works and what doesn't
0: yeah I think that's really important I th- I really love that message because just like you said there are so many messages of of doom and you know extinction and everything and it's all bad news um it's all bad news but these little things especially subsistence farming which well sorry subsistence food production I should start calling it is um is something that everyone can do and it's not it's not necessarily easy to start those things right but it's by definition within your own control to be able to do something and you also talked about connectedness to nature which I think is a big deal because it kind of gets rid of this whole tragedy of the commons thing if you're you know farming in your own backyard if you're growing your own veg if you've got your own um, your own food that you're producing so it just going into like the sort of urban context because you said at the beginning um, something quite relevant about the the rural communities being kind of stewards of the land in a way and they're sort of taken out of the environmental discussion at the moment which doesn't really make much sense but for people listening who don't really feel like they've got a backyard so they might be in a you know a tower it might be in the middle of a city in the middle of new york or wherever is it still doable for kind of urban communities to get involved in growing their own foods and
1: yeah so there are two layers to this answer the first layer is i think we we have to start thinking about so like so going back in history, there's this process of de-peasantization, which is that most people had some sort of peasant livelihood. And then there was industrialization. And then with that came urbanization. So like, you know, people moved into cities to do industrial labor. Um, I think we're the, the bigger picture answer is that we're going to have to start thinking about geographical redistribution because the way rural areas are currently set up, they're set up for industrial agriculture there's not a lot of people out there because they some farmers can farm hundreds or thousands of acres of land with these giant machines which needs to stop and then when that stops what happens who, who can farm that land it's going to have to be parceled up into smaller more manageable bits I imagine there could be a future that looks similar to the past but with modern um, differences but you know villages that are part of a food shed um, where it's just sort of this redistribution where you have the smaller towns, they're walkable. Then you have these rural areas that are outlying that can provide most of the food for the cities. Um, In the meantime, though, before that geographical redistribution happens, um, I do think that um, there are options for city people Uh, even if it's something as simple as community gardening. But I think more importantly, trying to connect with people who produce things in your area, not just food, but crafts or furniture or clothing or whatever. I can't really overemphasize how much I think it's important both for consumers to get to know people around them physically who make things that they need to live because I, I really don't see good things happening on the global supply chain front from a historical materialist perspective. It doesn't look great in terms of being able to get things that you need. So start fortifying those networks as soon as possible. Um, and then I also think that on the side of production, um, trying to reimagine what are our livelihoods really? Like if we're unemployed due to the pandemic for for this globalized economy that we have imagined and now um, now that whole system is kind of falling apart, what's next? What, what is a vision that's worth looking forward to? And I think a part of that vision for city people could be trying to get into a craft or a trade, a make make goods or provide services, repair things, build things, make things. I really have learned so much from my dissertation research and then some research I've done since then, how much meaning people have on in making or provide making things or providing services um, that are knowable and tangible and provide something that's useful to somebody within their community. And I think about there's this market here in Uruguay and I've had multiple experiences like that, this, but there's this market here in Uruguay and there's this woman who hand makes dolls, like just out of bits of cloth and felt. And um, we bought a doll, a doll for each of our daughters, uh, had them, had them made to look like them. So like a little blonde one and a little redhead one. And the look on the woman's face to see my daughters playing with this thing that she made. I mean, like, what if all of our things were imbued with such meaning? What if the things that we made gave people such meaning and we got to see that, like see the end point of it. Mm. I just, I can envision a way in which we can make a future like that. And it's not really rocket science, you know, where people can do stuff and make real things. Um, And I don't mean to be like protectionist or anything, but I think fortifying like good not just food sheds but goods sheds of of community where people make things that other people want um could be a really positive way forward
0: yeah oh uh, absolutely i so it's it's great and i'm really pleased you you mentioned um a local example actually because i was going to ask you whether there were kind of examples of that small well not small scale necessarily but the kind of local collaborative production chains
1: um, yeah, and in Uruguay, it's it's so much more widespread. And I think like if we're trying to think of an example that makes sense to us in the U.S. context, we would think of like the Amish, who have these stores. They make furniture, they make goods, they they make like basically everything you would need to live um, within their community and even sell outside of it. Um, it's very similar here in Uruguay. Um, lots of local producers, and then on top of it. There's also the the question of quality and, and it's so funny because like the Amish, you don't really need the Amish to have like a certified organic label. You more or less know what their practices are because you know like that they're pretty hardcore about their culture. Um, I'm, I'm painting with broad brushes here, but sure, yeah. you get the idea. And the same thing is true in Uruguay. Um, you know, you kind of know through, through social mechanisms, who does what kind of practice. Um, and you know the quality of their goods through these um, kind of just like like networks of gossip. It's not like sure, gossip, yeah. but like network social net, The way people talk about each other. Oh yeah, the way they do things over there. It's amazing and blah blah blah. And then you just know, you know what the quality is. So that's another thing that's I think really key to um, developing these kind of like local local networks in the U.S. is trying to fortify this vetting and this community Mm. trust in quality and practices
0: yeah I think that's a really important point that it's actually almost more reliable and the quality is better because you don't always associate local things with being good quality but like you said you're you're closer to where it's produced so you kind of know okay you know I know that person or I know this person knows that person whereas right now everyone is ordering their stuff through you know the internet and it's just coming from wherever you know no one knows where they're getting their stuff from i think that's a really really right important one. and
1: and i would just add sorry before you ask another question i would sure. just add that it's really important to to understand i'm gonna just like it's reiterating my earlier point but like none of this stuff is just a catch-all solution but it moves us in the right direction so like if you localize things it's not like local localizing will mean that somebody won't make a factory that and that just spews chemicals and then sells it locally of course that could happen Um, but it's just going to be more known to people what's going on if you don't have these like faceless corporations doing it and protected behind you know large fences or whatever Um, and so the the goal is not that it's a solution that's perfect from the beginning. And I think a lot of environmentalists like to imagine, we need to come up with the solution to this problem. Um, and it needs to be the perfect solution and completely thought out and planned in advance before we do it. And I'm saying the complete opposite. We don't know, but let's just start going in these directions of things that we want to see more of and then trial and error and see, see how it works and build from there.
0: Yeah, sure. Yeah. Well, I hope I'm not going on with that that like silver bullet idea, because I think you're right, there is no silver bullets because everything, all the problems, you know, even I'm terming them as problems, they're all just interconnected things, aren't they? You know, like population consumption, food, whatever. Um, we keep talking about subsistence food production, and you mentioned you mentioned Amish, I'm talking about kind of local communities and such. I can imagine because I've kind of grown up in that similar environment, right, where you hear these terms and you think about this stuff and you think about growing food in your back garden and it just seems like a step backwards because everyone's so focused on growth. And
1: Yeah, I think that um, we have been kind of sold the idea that um, progress means something or it means more technology or more alienation or whatever, but or like more things or um the freedom from labor, but I think what actually happens from a sociological point of view is that the progress um, that is experienced in the developed world, for example, it just gets offshored the labor part, we don't like get get rid of the labor the labor and the the negative consequences just get offshored to poorer countries. So it's really not like the the vision of progress that we have is just on the backs of so much inequality that I think, When you start thinking about subsistence food production or small scale craftsmanship or whatever, um, it's not just I think it's an act of solidarity in understanding that the role or the responsibility of making the material things that I need to live should at least partially fall on me as opposed to some person who's doing slave wage labor in a different country where we get our things from or a machine doing it that then outsources the, the negative outcomes through pollution to the environment. Um, so I think it's really just like a changing our perspective about you know who's responsible for what And understanding that that whole system works that way is is it's not easy to understand that it takes a lot of education to understand the way that the system works because in in developed countries a lot of that stuff gets hidden you don't really get to see the negative impacts of like almond milk or something or cashew milk you you, that stuff you know it's the labor is is done by people who don't get paid anything in some far away place and it's processed and you just see it on the shelf but I think understanding that makes it then something a, a goal to reach toward but yeah there there has been a, an effort made to made, to to say that this is like this is backwards this is the past this is we don't have to do this anymore but that kind of thinking led us to where we're at so we let's let's try something you know basically that humans have done for most of human history which is have something to do with the production of their livelihoods and see what we, we learn. And that doesn't mean we have to go back to the Paleolithic or even pre-industrial revolution. We can have hot water and plumbing and computers. Like I think we can have these things, but they just need to be treated as luxuries, the, the luxuries that they are. Um, and we need to repair things Yeah. <laughs> and we need to build things to be repairable and recyclable and and cyclical and all that kind of stuff, um, and it'll be a lot more imbalance um, to than than it is now.
0: Yeah, sure. And I mean, the irony is, i oh, just thinking about where I live around here. You know, people um, they earn a living, they get to a certain standard of living, they retire, and then they get an allotment, a garden. Just around the corner and they grow their own veg but they haven't done that for their entire life but that's how they retire you know and that's yeah
1: and that's like well and that's what's funny though is that a lot of people think of gardening as um, a very nice leisure activity so you, you know, it's, it's weird cognitive dissonance, like gardening is a leisure activity, but growing food is toil, you know, like, it's weird, like, no, it's, it can be enjoyable. And I've also spent a lot of time now that we're actually on the land, thinking about ways to garden or produce food, like work smarter, not harder, kind of, kind of uh, ways of doing things. And there's a lot of people experimenting in that direction. Um, and it, it just can be very enjoyable. And, I think something—if you change our perspective on it—can be can be a really nice and meaningful livelihood.
0: Yeah, it seems to be a connection thing as well. Like you said, sort of connecting with the environment. And I—I I actually really like to kind of emphasize the point you're talking about about kind of local connections, because again, not everything needs to be small scale and localized. But having a sense of community, which, in time and time again, has been shown to be the meaningful part of life for humans, that's the added benefit of you know being more locally minded and growing your own veg and having little trade things right it's not just about sacrificing something you you, people see it as a sacrifice but it's actually beneficial and you get to create these connections right
1: yeah absolutely and that was what i went into the research thinking was Um, There's a lot of research in sociology about the ways in which consumer purchasing, for example, buying bottled water or organic food is this very like neoliberal atomized like individualistic solution like I can afford organic food and therefore I'll buy that for my family and then problem solved as opposed to like thinking maybe we shouldn't make industrial food that destroys the planet for everybody, but instead so I thought that food production was going to be similar. Like it's just this individualized solution, neoliberal, like people are all about self-reliance in the U S and blah, blah, blah. But then what ended up happening is that these people necessarily had to reach out to one another because they like, if you're keeping chickens in the city of Chicago, there's only two or three places where you can source feed, like where you can actually drive to source feed. So you go to those places um, and then all of a sudden, like your chickens have mites or whatever. And then you're like, oh, I need to get in touch with somebody to figure figure this out because you can only get so far with books when it comes to production. When it comes to consumption, you can consume differently and you can leave it at that and you never have to really ask somebody about it. But when it comes to production problems arise and you kind of like need these mentor networks and then those just flourish into community naturally. Mm. Um, and, and yeah, of course, it's, it's an incredibly meaningful and necessary shift we need to make for the future, for sure.
0: Yeah. And I, so it would be really nice to talk about things that people can, can do and actively do, calls to action for, for the listeners. Is there, just, just before we get onto that, how is it that you can kind of stop those little connections from basically turning into these large-scale things that we have now, the large scale systems that we have now, because it's all well and good having them, but essentially someone is surely going to say, Oh, I can start trading elsewhere and you know, it gets bigger and snowballs and snowballs. How can you kind of stop that?
1: I don't, I don't know that you can, or that you, I don't know if you even necessarily. So, okay, let me take a historical materialist perspective. Uh, Like if oil is really cheap, it's going to be easy And it's going to make economic sense to ship something. For example, the other day I was posting on Twitter, a a jar of peaches and pears or pears, I think that was grown in Argentina and packed in Thailand and then sold in like Connecticut or something that that doesn't make financial sense if oil is too expensive. So there are like material limits on uh, systems and those material limits are are increasingly um, coming up and which which is why we're having problems with global supply systems. But no, I think, yeah, I think there are going to be material limitations on remaking a global supply chain as we have now. But I also think like, for example, not every little Hamlet is going to make laptops you know it's okay like you know what i mean there's gonna be some things that are traded and that makes sense that's fine to do um as long as the scale isn't so ridiculous that you would be sending pairs across the world you know yeah so it's really just like a matter of scale and taking steps into more regional directions or nationwide directions for most things that make sense to do that way and i think that it's not really a matter of like Let's get people to do this. It's like they're already doing it, and they they need to do it. and And the faster they do it, the less uh, scary the next few decades will look.
0: Yes, which is a lovely thing to end, to talk about. Anyway, at the end, um, okay. So let's finish off with these lovely calls to action. So, what is it that people can do after listening to this conversation, if they've changed their mind or they are already doing it? What is it that they can kind of do to take steps towards being a bit more self-reliant?
1: Yeah, so I would say taking the lessons from my my own journey, which was um, what was my tendency when I was trying to write my dissertation? My tendency was to talk to people like me. I'm from Chicago, I'm an environmentalist, I'm highly educated now. So I wanted to talk to like other like city, environmentalist, educated people. And that was the wrong instinct. (laughs) The right instinct was to talk to and thank God for John Schneider. I'll send this to you, John, for pushing me in that direction, because I spoke with people who were different from me and learned so much about what we have in common and learned so much about the ways in which we can work together toward a common future. And I think the, the first step is to get outside of your comfort zone. The second, with socially, the second step is to find something practical to work on with this, this hy- hypothetical person who's different from you. Um, people just want an excuse to connect. So just make one up, like whatever it is, you know, there's so many different ways we can, you can be like, I thought of this, or I got chickens, I need help, whatever. I thought of this idea for a project um let's whatever let's let's see if we can plant or we can um paint bike lanes in our neighborhood and you start talking to other people about it, and they're like oh yeah that's a good idea i would like that whatever the project is i think we should do some sort of cooperative after school program with other parents what whatever it is anything you're interested in or any solution that you can see or think of Talk to other people who you think might be interested in that solution, especially people who are different from you. And people just like really are, are craving meaning, connection, purpose, something to do that's like that they can see a tangible outcome of. And then you just like the there's so many beneficial side effects. You make friends, you build a network, that network becomes more resilient. When people start working on one project, automatically other people start think saying like just kind of Having these informal conversations like, yeah, all right, we made an after school program co op. Um, with the with the parents around our neighbor neighborhood or whatever, and then oh yeah, did you guys hear that the, they're growing mushrooms in a wood chip pile in their backyard? Isn't that weird? And then they're like, well, what is that? Show me more about that. And then like oh now we're now we're all talking about mushrooms or bees or chickens or whatever, and there's just this weird cross pollination that happens when you just start talking with people and and doing things that a little bit differently and mixing things up. The really positive thing about this crisis is that it has shifted everybody's normal patterns of behavior. And this is the perfect moment to start, you know, trying new things and seeing what new patterns will stick. Um, And so my call to action is that. And, and (laughs) again, the historical materialist in me speaking, it's not going to look very good in the next couple decades. If we don't, start fortifying these networks. So like, it's not really just about these feel good, like you should do this because it'll it'll be like altruistic or good for the environment. Like you should do this for your own sake so that you have people around you who can help you in times of crisis that are surely on the horizon. So do it, do it for your own good, if not for the planet, your community, you know, and, and everything else, posterity, your children, whatever.
0: I think that's awesome. That's awesome. I'm inspired to do this because it's great. No, it's great because, well, I mean, I won't go into too much, but people are just expecting like, oh, you know, go plant some stuff or do this, which, you know, are great. But the idea of talking to other people and creating those connections, I think is just such a cool message to be to be saying this will make change because... Like,
1: and it also starts with people. Like it has to start with... Well, I mean, you can start with an idea in your head, but then it, 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 it's it got to get out into the real world. It's got to get tested. Go try it. Also, um, I don't know if you've ever heard this phrase, granolier than thou. No. It's like <laughs> more environmentalist than the next person or whatever. You, we, we, that needs to be abandoned yesterday. Like we, we got to get up, get over the purity politics, get over the like, oh, well, I, my kid never watched a TV screen and I never ate uh, industrial. No, we are all part of this really messed up system. It's okay. We're all on a journey. It's not gonna be perfect. We're gonna be messy. Let's do this stuff out loud. Let's try. There is no like solution that's perfect. We're just gonna try it. We're gonna be messy and that's that's okay. It's okay.